Here begins the lesson. Four lessons, to be precise, for chief marketing officers to consider during a crisis. And no prizes for guessing what that current crisis is. CMOs, according to Hugh Wilson, Professor of Marketing at Warwick Business School, have moved from frustration to action over the last weeks as they grapple with the coronavirus pandemic. And in this Core Insights podcast, one of a series focusing on the impact the pandemic's having on both individuals and society, and on how your organisations can survive it, Professor Wilson will be explaining what strategies CMOs might consider in a crisis of this nature. Well, Professor, what's the immediate effect of the virus on marketing strategies, and what are people now doing to alter things to suit new circumstances? Well, obviously, many of them are coming under financial pressure if they're in the many sectors where revenue is down. But quite apart from that, a lot of the frustration, I think, was a kind of understandable mental frustration that they'd be working hard on campaigns for months, got them tested, ready to launch, creatives designed, And all of a sudden they had to stop that. And I think that is inevitably just kind of psychologically a bit difficult. But they soon got over that. But the next thing that happened was that they went ahead with some advertising that just wasn't working as they expected. And what we found is that many of the adverts that they expect to resonate with people and have resonated with people in the past are just not resonating with them now. Simply because of the virus in the air? Ultimately, yes, even if it's in categories where people are continuing to buy things, financial services, for example, or food and drink, the way in which the adverts are framed are not working because people are thinking in a very different way in this environment. So give me an example of something that might have been done in the past that's not working now. Well, let's take a bank because this is, this is one sector where... I happen to have some good data on how consumers feel at the moment from work I've been doing with an innovative agency based in New York and London called Mesh Experience. And what they do is they track how consumers respond to banks by asking them to report in a kind of electronic diary on their mobile phone as they go about their life every time they come across a bank. And what they're finding is If you take, for example, Lloyd's in the UK, they have some adverts involving horses and it's kind of intergenerational messages saying we're with you together and we'll support you in dealing with your family life. And it's just not meeting the urgent needs that people have right now. They're not thinking about pensions. They're not thinking about avoiding inheritance tax. They're thinking about how do I pay the bills this month? What do I do about getting a job and how do I stay safe? So what do marketers have to do to respond to this new mood? Well, the first thing they have to do is just stop the irrelevant ads, if necessary, have a break from advertising, which isn't difficult for most of them because they're under massive financial pressure. So we don't want to buy their Chaumet jewellery, their Patek Philippe watches, their 2021 cruises. To just take three examples of people who are advertising this weekend in early April, as we record this, and... They just go straight over customers' heads. If anything, these brands are training customers not to listen to them. Literally, it's worse than irrelevant. It's training the customer 
to ignore the next thing we say. What they do need to do is focus messages on helping people with their current urgent needs. Now, you quote the old definition of marketing as meeting the needs of your customer at a profit. Why does that not hold good now? Well, it kind of does, but the the needs have changed. We're, we're in a de- very different mindset. If you look at some very good work just being published by McKinsey, looking across 10 or so countries worldwide at the mood of the public, and our worries are just different from what they might normally be. They're quite short-term. People are not so worried about the future. They're worried about how to get through this year. And, and what people want is help right now. So what they want is messages that, not, not showing off what companies are doing to help, but literally messages that help. So ex- examples of, of ads that do come across well are some of the full-page adverts in some of the daily newspapers that have been happening in the United Kingdom that do things like say, okay, this is what to do if you can't afford to pay your mortgage right now. This is how you can miss payments if you need to. This is where to go if you need help. If you want to ring us, this is times of day when the call centers are less busy. Here are some messages about avoiding fraud. Those things go down very well. Messages that are simply designed to help people right now. You mentioned the phrase brand purpose. Just remind us what that is and how it's coming under strain in these unusual times. Yeah, the notion has been around for a long time, but actually before coronavirus hit, this was one of the big exciting things that's been going on in the business world in the last three or four years is people have started treating purpose kind of seriously. Most companies have been trying to define a higher purpose for themselves, by which I mean a purpose other than making more money for their shareholders. So the notion is that firms should declare a reason for existing, a way in which, if they didn't exist, customers and society and or the planet would be worse off. So that's what a business purpose is. So some examples would be business, Disney has long, had a long-standing one of we create happiness. And that is really deeply embedded into their culture. Um, that's how they managed to create such kind of happy, customer-focused staff in all their theme parks, despite the fact they're paid minimum wage. They, they do all they can to give people a happy day. It's kind of deeply embedded into their culture. Well, you and your colleagues have been talking to CMOs and customers and come up with four lessons to learn. Number one, let go of your brand campaigns. Why is that important and what does it involve? Well, the campaigns start from the wrong perspective at the moment. They start from the perspective of let's sell our customers more products and that doesn't work for anyone right now there are two sorts of firms right now there are firms whose products are just irrelevant to people at the moment obviously many out-of-home service industries like high street shops and restaurants but also things like luxury goods people are just not in that space they're cutting down their expenditure and for them the ads are irrelevant 
then there's the other group for whom demand is going up. And the problem is not generating more demand, it's satisfying the demand. And there are obvious cases of online services that substitute for the previous offline services. So online education, if you're in an education business such as my employer, Warwick Business School in the UK, the challenge is not generating demand. It's how can we take our competence in online education and stretch it and scale it up. It's the same with if you're if you're a fitness provider or if you're a, a violin teacher like my wife. The challenges are service challenges, not advertising challenges. But the take-up of marketing campaigns seem to be up and down, balancing itself out. On the one hand, people may well not be noticing billboards as much these days because they're confined to home, but indoors they'll be exposed to more TV and net adverts. Well, that's right. It, and actually, the, the number of ads that are being noticed hasn't gone down much in the data we've seen so far. Clearly, as you say, there's a channel shift. Billboards have, it used to be the case only a month ago that seven out of 100 people were seeing the ads for any given brand that month on a billboard. So if you're a bank, 7% of people would see your billboard that month. Now it's about 2%. So what, that, that, that's obviously happening. That has been compensated, as you say. People are just consuming different media. So it's been compensated by more radio reach people are noticing more brands on the radio on the telly and of course many companies that are making this switch getting rid of their ad campaigns and switching to the kind of service messages i've been advocating such as the banks they are now reaching out to people more particularly their own customers through email and through mail as well and through sms messages so people are getting just as many brand messages actually it's just that only some of them are relevant to them now. So is it saying that in these testing times where simply staying solvent, feeding your family, paying the rent or the mortgage, count for more and adverts are losing their power? People want something more concrete. That's absolutely right. But in another way, it's not a time to sell more to new customers. It's a time to earn their lifetime gratitude by helping them with their real problems right now. So what we're seeing then is banks offering practical help, mortgage holidays, reduction in interest rates and the like, and in the end that's much better than a black horse on the sand. Yes, that's right. Um, that's, what people, that's what people remember right now. And we need to be careful. If we come across as exploitative right now, then we can trigger not just anger, we can trigger disgust. And if you trigger disgust, you're in real trouble. There was some very fine research by, done by a, a London-based social media analyst called Mark Westerby that showed that if your consumers start showing disgust in what they're saying about you online, this is a very powerful predictor of the chief executive falling. And the same, the same applies to politicians, by the way. And I was thinking of that research because I've been seeing evidence of disgust in some of this data we've been collecting about banking. So it's really, really important. It's worse than being irrelevant. We can actually, if we're not careful, really turn our customers off us for life. Now, this is the sceptic, or do I mean cynic in me now? I mean, is this philanthropy or 
charity? Is it is it concrete help? Or is it a carefully designed advertising campaign in disguise? Well, do firms mean it? Certainly there's no doubt that customers want, all of us, people, want to feel that firms are on our side. Now, there are clearly two approaches to that. If, if that's what your market research tells you and you're a, you're a firm, you've got two approaches you can adopt. The first more cynical approach is to try even harder to kind of integrate and manage our messaging. You know, the kind of authenticity is everything, fake that and you'll clean up kind of point of view. The other approach is to mean it, to try to build a company culture around a higher purpose. And I think what we're seeing here is it brings out actually the kind of debates that have been going on about the future of capitalism and for-profit companies in particular over the last decade or two about whether we need to embed a higher purpose into every company in a more genuine way and how we might do that. And consumers, you say, aren't hoodwinked by all this. Indeed, they're hyper alert to any whiff of self-interest. Well, they are. And one thing that happens is, particularly enabled by social media, you can't say one thing and be another because how you are as a company will come across in the other forms of touch point we have with companies, which is what we call earned media, what the press are saying, what our peers are saying online, and owned media, our own experience of the company. And we will soon pick up on disjunctions between those. And lesson number two for marketers is hang on to your higher purpose. And in this, you've looked at a particular example, Adidas versus Nike. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Adidas doesn't really have a higher purpose. If you, if you look up on their website, you know, what do we exist for? You know, all firms have got some kind of vision or mission or purpose statement. And there it says, to be the global leader in the sporting goods industry. Well, okay, I'm sure that motivates the board. But I'm not sure that's motivational for the employees, actually, necessarily. And neither is it motivational for customers. By contrast, Nike has a purpose of doing everything possible to expand human innovation. And we've been interested in, in, in the marketing faculty in Warwick in, in looking at those different styles and over the last couple of years in those firms. And it's been interesting how they've responded differently this week. Adidas came under fire for refusing to pay the shopping malls rent in Germany. You'd think that's a local issue in Germany, but it went global. So what was going on here was the government had a scheme to help hard-pressed small retailers and Adidas have kind of own brand shops in, in Germany and they were piggybacking on this scheme and saying we're not going to pay our rent to the malls over the next three months. This made a politician, an MP, so apoplectic that he burnt an Adidas shirt on video and Adidas had to back down, but in the process, it generated massive worldwide negative coverage from London to India, Turkey, and the share price impact was they lost $2 billion in the share price over the last week. So Adidas rather fell short this week. Nike, by comparison, they've been emphasizing helping people with what's bugging them at the moment, They're not just been giving them 
hints and tips on exercise at home and social ways of doing that online. They've also been looking at things like this mental health issue, and they've been giving people advice online on how to adopt an attitude of gratitude, for example, is one of their little streams that they're emphasizing, and they're giving help on eating more healthily. They're taking this this wider purpose they have and trying to apply it more broadly than selling sneakers, which no one's going to buy at the moment anyway. So personal messages from the CEO. Indeed, I got one from Sainsbury's the other day saying, you know, this is what we're going to do. These are the hours. We won't do this. We will do that. That sort of thing counts for more in the end than 2p off broccoli. Well, it is going to count for more. And we've seen nice examples of that from people like Ed Bastian at Delta Airlines in the States, one from Arna Sorensen at Marriott. They go down well because they're human. One thing people want right now is actually empathy. Um, They don't just have practical needs at the moment. We have psychological needs. People are, are worried and they're highly uncertain about the future. One of the difficulties, of course, is no one knows what's going to happen next with with coronavirus, what will happen to the economy, what will happen to their jobs. So actually, the first thing that people want is to feel understood and supported and sympathised with. And that's actually very important for, for service touch points as well in call centres. People don't just want practical help, they, they want empathy. There's also something going on at the moment in terms of individual messages versus collective messages. We're more collectively motivated at the moment than usual. We have a number of what's called social identities as people, groups we aspire to belong to. And many marketers target these social identities. So, for example, buy this Liverpool football shirt to show that you're central within the group of Liverpool supporters. But right now, the identity that's triggered is bigger than that. We're in a war together as a country, as a species, <laughs> and the outgroup becomes not Liverpool supporters, if you're a Manchester United fan, the outgroup becomes this alien species, coronavirus. And that makes quite a difference to what we want from firms. We want firms to be joining in that fight. So to lesson number three, um, innovate around your purpose. Just explain that, perhaps with reference to Spectrum, Verizon and even the BBC. Strength of having a strong brand purpose is that it can help you innovate and look at the world in a fresh way and come up with new propositions to customers. The simplest of those are to address people's financial needs and innovate in the financial terms we have. So Spectrum in the US, for example, offered 60 days of free internet to help students who now need to work at home. And Verizon and Comcast, amongst others, made some on-demand viewing free of charge. There are plenty of examples of people kind of riffing on the financial terms to meet the current situation. More fundamental innovations start modifying the products we give. And a simple example of that is the BBC in the United Kingdom with its public service heritage, which is providing a whole host of content offerings that are applicable for the times, not just coronavirus updates, but also educational programming for children. And there are plenty of other examples. And one of them being Greg's, the high street baker, um, in that In the current lockdown, brand values are just as important as a reasonably priced sausage roll. Well, that's right. The kind of purpose movement in corporate life 
suggests that you need to develop a purpose statement which includes the values by which you will meet that purpose. And in the case of Greg's, their values include being enthusiastic and supportive. And I think that helped them because on the day when, on 23rd of March, when in the United Kingdom it was announced that shops had to shut except some essentials like supermarkets, Greg's announced they'd be closing their branches ahead of the deadline, which went down well. But at the same time, inspired, I think, by those values, they simultaneously said they would help those in hardship through their long-standing Greg's Foundation that's existed for decades. And they'd also support local communities with free food. And that was an interesting contrast with some of how some of the other retailers reacted that day. Sports Direct, for example, which doesn't really have such a higher purpose. The closest it has is an aspiration to be an international retail leader. Not surprisingly, it reacted in a different way. They said they'd resist the government's call for retailers to close, arguing that sportswear would help people exercise. And that didn't go well, down well, partly because of what people were hearing about what else the company was up to. Um, the media were saying they're putting their prices up online, which came across as exploitative. The media were also reporting allegations that warehouse staff with high-risk medical conditions would be sacked if they didn't turn up for work. And this led to a significant backlash. It made the front page of the media outlets, which soon forced the firm to fall into line, but at a cost in highly critical earned media coverage. Okay, so lesson number four is trust in the force, which you define as the private sector putting society's interests first. But is that commercially viable, sustainable? There's been a long academic debate about this, and there are plenty of academic papers, some of them arguing that there is hard quantitative evidence that if you do have a higher purpose, it will prove sustainable commercially. And I'd say the truth is it's too early to tell in, in academic terms. The data isn't good enough. But one doesn't want to predict the future. But one thing we can look at is the reaction of stock markets, because it's the job of stock markets to predict impact of what people do on long term future. And if you take the spat between Sports Direct and the government versus what Greg's do, I had a look at the impact of this on the stock market valuations of those firms. And Greg's approach, which was more purpose-led, I would suggest, led to their shares going up that week by 9%. Sports Direct was down 3% that week, down 40% on, on the month. And it wasn't just a sector thing, because Sports Direct's direct competitor to JD Sports was up 13%. So by any measure, they had a seriously bad week. So the key is investing in consumer trust. I mean, isn't it something people should be doing all the time, you know, mending the roof while the sun's shining and not just doing it in these times of emergency? You're absolutely right. I think for our existing customers, which I think should be a lot of the focus at the moment for most firms to protect their relationship with their existing customers, a big thing to invest in is, as it were, gratitude to help them in their hour of need, which is now. I think for prospective customers, I think you're absolutely right. I think trust is a key variable. And what we do know 
from long-standing, very strong academic research is it's not just satisfaction that drives repeat purchase behavior and recommendation. It's not just being satisfied with what the firm does. Trust is an equally important variable in driving our decision-making. Um, so, um, if we, if, so, yeah. so if we can build trust, we can trust in the force that this will, this will pay off. And then, of course, the companies like Ford and General Motors offering to make ventilators. Now, that's clearly socially beneficial and is bound to get you brownie points, I suppose. Yes, and I think this is, this is also, a, 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 we've, we've seen plenty, plenty of examples of this in recent weeks of firms taking their existing resources, their people, their manufacturing capability, and just using it to help people now. And in the United Kingdom, it's been nice to see manufacturers here get stuck in. Our major manufacturers, of, we, of which we don't have a lot, but we, we happen to have some global strength in, in aerospace, Airbus, Rolls-Royce, as well as um, GKN in automotive. And they've also been busy making ventilators as well. But also people can redeploy their human resources. Uber offering 200,000 free rides and 100,000 free meals for NHS staff is a super, super example. We've got people who are underemployed right now. We can just make a difference and help, which, which the Uber riders want to do anyway. And th- th- there was a nice example in the US of Jersey Mike Subs, which makes those sandwiches. They've been encouraging their staff to volunteer on the front line whilst they're not busy serving their customers now and, and helping them to do that. So is it the case that doing good actually pays and that the financial markets would be all in favour of it? I'd put it slightly less cleanly like that. I think there is a high road in business. You can flourish in the long term by doing your best to do good. And we've seen some super examples of that, the likes of Unilever, which has been strongly purpose-led for, for some time, has paid off very well for the shareholders. More explicitly purpose-led business models, such as the mutuals and the cooperatives, can pay in the long term. And it's not surprising that in tough times, people tend to turn to trusted brands. So John Lewis and Waitrose do massively well in, in tough times. Their advance was almost unimpeded by the credit crunch and the difficulties that followed. And I would expect it to be the same this time. So you need to nurture trust in the good times in order to reap its rewards in the bad. That's absolutely right. One way of looking at this is in order to be persuasive, whether you're a politician or whether you're a firm, the research says you basically need to do three, three things. The first is that you have to come across as expert. The second is you have to come across as likable. We humans have a shortcut. If we like someone, we're more inclined to trust what they say and be persuaded by them. And, if, and, and, and the third is that we have to be perceived as authentic, to be on the listener's side. So you can see this playing out, for example, with the current generation of politicians, some of whom succeed by emphasizing likability. People like humans rather than robots, so they don't mind if 
if politicians are riffing on their feet and contradicting each other because they come across as more human. And they can also come across as more authentic, that they're not reading from a script. And what's going on at the moment is some firms are being hammered on authenticity, on, on not seeming like they're on the customer side. And bringing this to a close now, you ask that final question, are consumers serious this time about holding firms to their declared purpose of helping people? Yeah, uh, do customers mean it this time? Do we want firms to be different, to be purpose-led rather than profit-led? I'd say it's too early to tell. I would suggest at the moment there's no reason to suppose that consumers won't take the pressure off firms once the crisis recedes. I was talking earlier about social identity, how at the moment a social identity that's triggered is being a human, and a bit less broadly than that, being a citizen of Britain or a citizen of the United States or a citizen of, of India. Those values are strongly triggered at the moment. The moment we go back to our normal lives, there's a difficulty that all the much more specific social identities will instantly get triggered. The moment we're out and about, I might want to be thinking of myself not as a good British person or a good human, but as a trendy person. Or if I enter the Barbican Centre, at that moment, I'm thinking of myself as a classical musician. The moment I go back to Warwick Business School, I'm a business school professor. So our motivations will change, I think, and become less collective again. I'll be more interested in being a good Spurs fan. That's, I think, what could happen at least. So I think whether this whole crisis has a longer term effect on how capitalism works, I think depends partly on how long it lasts. If you go back to the comparison of the, the Second World War, which is, which is a kind of obvious one at the moment, out of that came a new social contract in many contracts. Out of that came the whole drive in countries like the United Kingdom to have, um, through the beverage report, to set up the National Health Service. Out of it came global initiatives like the United Nations and the new global financial system. And that whole mood and the institutions that have been set up lasted for some considerable time, for decades, before the world started becoming a bit more individualistic again um, in the 1980s. But perhaps that only happened because of the depth of the crisis of the Second World War and because its duration was long enough for policymakers, politicians to be forced to respond institutionally. So will this crisis end up in politicians changing the very structure of business so that firms are forced to stick to their purpose? There have been some really interesting global experiments in new ways of embedding purpose into for-profit businesses, such as the benefit corporations in the, in the States, companies like Ben & Jerry's, Patagonia, um, Body Shop, Kickstarter, Natura. And what this model does is it actually embeds into your constitution as, as a business your higher purpose. So in the case of Patagonia, for example, which makes clothes that higher purpose, is to help the environment. And one interesting question is, out of this whole crisis, will 
that kind of purpose-led business constitution, those new legal forms that embed purpose into the very constitution of a business, become the norm, the new capitalism in 10 or 20 years out of this crisis? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. A question we look forward to seeing the answer to when things are back to normal. Hugh, thank you. Professor Hugh Wilson, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast.